0: John chapter 11. We are going to finish chapter 11 today. Um, and uh, if, if you're looking in the bulletin and you see the title of today's message, you might be wondering, what, what in the world is the connection between the title and this passage? Uh, the subversive purposes of God. Um, what is it about how God interacts with time and time? And how is it that God interacts with people to bring about his purposes? Because here in this passage, we have multiple things going on. We have those who intended to destroy Jesus, to put him to death. And then we have the high priest inadvertently making a prophecy about Israel that is both true in the way that he meant it and it's also true and prophetic in the way that God intended it. It is a remarkable uh, part of how God actually works his purposes in the world despite our intentions. I think it is a remarkable thing to see, especially in the wake of the death of Lazarus because everyone that was present there was wondering what in the world Jesus was doing. This is one of his best friends and yet he wasn't here to prevent his death. And Jesus says there was purpose in his death, so that God may be glorified. And you believe. The same thing comes to us, reader. As you are reading the Gospel of John, we are to look at these passages and realize that God is in control, regardless of how bleak certain things look. There is a lot of people that uh, that are in the church that imagine that God is as frustrated as you are with the state of the world. He is not. God is working his salvation, he will surely see it to an end, and his promises will not fail. The reality is not that God is just trying really hard to fulfill his promises, it is that he sees the future as much as he sees the past. That he ordains whatsoever comes to pass, as the scriptures express, as the apostles prayed in reference to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and here the same. God is giving his prophecies through the mouth of the high priest when the high priest is not even aware of what he is saying. It's a fascinating passage, and it's one that I want us to take note of because it's usually passed over really quick uh, because we deal with everything with Lazarus, and then we move on to Passion Week, which is coming up in the Gospel of John now. Um, But I want us to sit on this for this day. Let me ask you to stand in honor of God and his word as we read this passage. It is John 11. 45 through 57. Lazarus has just been risen from the dead. Here's some of the reactions. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. But one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So that so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for this passage. We're thankful, Father, that you inspired these words so many years ago and have preserved them through these years, that they may come down to us even this morning as you intend. We pray, Father, now that we do not just simply read them with physical eyes, but that we see your gospel and we see your promised glory through them. May you illumine our hearts to understand and love your word. Father, may it do its deep work on us as you promise, challenging us, teaching us to love Christ, to love one another, and to seek a unity through humility in the body of Christ. We pray for this with our whole hearts. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Interesting passage, no? You'd be almost forgiven to not be anywhere near as familiar with it as you are with the raising of Lazarus from the dead because isn't it just kind of a connective narrative thing? You know, after he raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus does this, the high priest says something, they kind of search for him, he goes to Ephraim, and that's kind of the end of the story. John doesn't write with just extra narrative story. He writes with purpose. Every single thing he spells out is meant with purpose to express the reality of the gospel, especially to the reader, that they may believe and live. And so even when he makes connections between things, he's not just telling you a story of how Jesus did not go all the way into Um, uh, into Jerusalem yet he stays in Ephraim and as if it's just narrative details he's giving it to us to show us an aspect of this gospel he has to show us this aspect of the gospel because in this world it is very difficult is it not to see the kingdom of God because the kingdoms of this earth so often fill our vision isn't it hard sometimes Is it not hard sometimes to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the central narrative of this entire earth? We don't even read about it in the newspapers. If you listen to the news and fill your mind with what's going on in the world, you will hear of earthquakes, you will hear of mudslides, you will hear of tragedy here, you will hear of politics there, war, rumors of wars, all sorts of things going on in the world. It has always been the case And it is very hard, and it was true of John's day as well when he writes this, for the Christian or even for the unbeliever who is coming to learn the things about Christ to see the kingdom of God as the main narrative of all of history. But it truly is. And as he expresses here, it doesn't matter whether we seek to preserve nation or people or ethnicity or even Caiaphas protecting his entire people. God's purposes are actually the subversive narrative that's going on throughout the entire thing. Why were the Romans there at all? Well, if you know the history of what has gone on before, it is because the Greeks were there before that. Before them, the Persians. Before them, the Babylonians. Before them, the Assyrians. Before them was the divided kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom, and before them was the united kingdom of Solomon and David and Saul. Before that, the judges, Samson and Samuel. Before that, Egypt. Before that, there were nomads. Before that was Abraham. Before that was the family and descendants of Noah. Before that, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the purposes of God throughout the history of the world have never played a central role in the minds of the world, but it has always played the central role in what's going on. When we look out at the world when we read the news, we should not be surprised that we do not see news about the kingdom of heaven. When we read the news, we see the kingdoms of this earth. The kingdom of heaven is not coming in a way, if you read the uh, bulletin insert this week, the kingdom of heaven is not coming in a way that can be observed. Where someone says, oh, there's, there's the best expression of the kingdom of heaven in this world. No, 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 no. It is not about nations. It is not about the rising and falls of empires. The kingdom of heaven is in the body of Christ. It will not make headlines. But one day, the kingdom of heaven will fill heaven and earth. Now, it is subversive and it is small. Now, it doesn't take center stage. Isn't it the same as Christ? He was just a rabbi, no form or comeliness by which we should desire him. Just a man, right? Walking around in Galilee, preaching things that the rest of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees did not support. To their appearance, just a man. And if he was just a man, here's the thing, they would have been right to kill him. Because he, being a man, was claiming to be God and they knew it. But look at this passage here. The reaction to the raising of Lazarus from the dead was that many believed on Jesus, not just because of some wonder or work that he had done, but because he obviously holds in his hands life itself. If someone holds in their hands life itself, that is someone worth listening to. Can they not solve the unsolvable problem? How many of you expect that you're going to live in this body for all time? You'll be the one exception to history. No, it's an unsolvable problem. It is the outcome of sin. It is the outcome of the law. It is the outcome of all of these things. Nobody has ever been able to solve it. And here Jesus comes and with a word, solves it. Shows that the message that he carries is life itself. Promises to his people that those who trust in him will live. Even if they die, they will live. But those who seek to preserve their life, it's all about this. Make the most of this now will certainly lose it. Remember he said that back at the start of chapter 11. So John includes this. Watch what he does with this. Verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. There's the right response. It is not just to marvel at a tremendous work. We saw the outcome of that in John chapter 6, didn't we? The bread and the fish were multiplied. The fill of the loaves, what did they want to do? They wanted to make him king. They want, and John 6 says they wanted to forcibly make him king. Be our political ruler because what more do we want from our political ruler than free stuff? It works every election season. It was working with them. If he's able to make us free bread forever, we'll make him king. And they tried to come and by force make him king. And what did he do? He left. He went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and they followed him around to the next day. What did they say? They came around there. And what did Jesus say? You are not coming after me because... You believe in me. You are here because you had your fill of the loaves. Only here for these signs and wonders, not here for the life that I'm giving. And so he taught them one of the hardest messages, that he indeed was the bread from heaven. They should eat his flesh and drink his blood, otherwise they'll have no part with him. And then everyone left from the greatest to the least. We see here the antithesis of that. When they had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, they did not go, Jesus, please, come over to this tomb. This is my friend who died too. There's another tomb next door. This guy died three weeks ago. Tell him to come out too. Nobody was doing this. They saw that what he held was not tricks and parlor tricks and just rank miracles. They saw that what he was holding was life itself. And so many of them who had come with Mary had seen what he did. They believed in him. But some of them, despite watching him raise somebody from the dead in front of their eyes, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, knowing exactly how the Pharisees would interact, knowing exactly how they would respond to this. Again, I display for you The problem with the unbelieving heart is not there's not enough knowledge. Knowledge will not solve an unbelieving heart. They watched somebody come back from the dead and they didn't believe in him. We might like to think that, you know, in the modern sensibilities, if we witness a miracle like that, we would believe all the more. Wouldn't it be just absolutely fantastic to be able to witness this? It would be an incredible boost to our faith. No. Faith is a gift of God, not as a result of observation. Faith is a gift of God. And here we see people who just watch Jesus take this man out of a tomb and raise him to life again, a corpse, come back to life again, be able to sit down and talk with him, still refuse to believe in Jesus. I'll remind myself of that every time I'm faced with somebody that wants me to convince them to become a Christian, I don't have the ability to do that. I can only give you the gospel. I can only give you the word of God. The word of God will bring faith to the heart of the hearers that God is calling. And so when you are evangelizing your friends or your acquaintances or your family, do not lose heart. It is not onto you and the the eloquence of your words and and the appeal to the emotions. The reality is if they will not believe, it wouldn't matter if you had the ability to raise a corpse out of a cemetery down the street. They still wouldn't believe. Because faith is not a matter of getting enough information. Faith is a gift. Whereby one hearing of Christ relies on him. I know for me it took hearing the gospel right around 1200 times before I became a Christian. How many for you? Was it the first time you ever heard it? Second? 50th? 10,000th? I thankfully I grew up in a church where I got to hear the gospel every Sunday. Still took me 11 years to become a Christian. The reality is, when I say do not lose heart, you do not know what God is working with. You do not know the outcome of these things. Thankfully, I had faithful people in my life that were responsible and were faithful to preach to me number 743 through number 872. But I didn't become a Christian until number 1,200 times to hear the gospel. Did that mean that person failed? No. They played their role. They were faithful to what God had given them, and they were faithful to the people that God provided in their midst. The same encouragement goes to all of us. Because some of these people who go to the Pharisees, they will be recanting and repenting and becoming Christians on the day of atonement about seven weeks out. But a lot of them that day When they didn't believe in Jesus, having seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, go to the Pharisees knowing that they were going to try to kill him. Does that mean that the miracle of Jesus failed to bring salvation to all of them? Oh, no. See here the purposes of God undercurrent. It was necessary that day that some believe, and it was necessary that day that others don't, so that the Pharisees would come to seek him to put him to death. It was necessary because that was the purpose of God. You see, the death of Christ was no accident either. It was promised since Genesis chapter 3. It was through all the prophets, all the Psalms that were expressing this reality. So, we get say. We get this picture, these two reactions to Christ. Many of them who came believed on him, but some didn't. And they went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And you would think that, well, if the chief priests and the Pharisees, if they were truly following the God of the Old Testament scriptures, if they were truly Old Testament saints, wouldn't they recognize life when it showed up? I mean, wouldn't they believe even if someone comes back from the dead, right? Wouldn't you? We think very highly of ourselves. Jesus, in another parable, speaks to uh, the rich man. Remember this parable: the rich man and Lazarus. What happens with the rich man? He's finding himself in torment. Lazarus is uh, Lazarus. Different Lazarus, by the way. Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, right, being comforted. All these things. And what does what does the rich man say to Abraham? Let me go back and warn my brothers. I have six brothers. Let me go back and warn them so that they don't come to this place. What does Abraham say to him? Someone just said it. They have Moses and the prophets. prophets. That's the Old Testament scriptures. If they don't listen to them, they will not listen even if someone raises from the dead. By the way, not to give away the end, Jesus dies and comes to life again at the end of this story. The chief priests and the scribes know it and make it a cover-up. They pay off the guards to say that his disciples came and stole the body. It means that even though someone rose from the dead and they knew it happened, they still did not believe in him. Never underestimate the power of unbelief. Never underestimate its chains. Watch what happens. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. I got an answer to that question. (laughs) How about you listen to his words? How about you hear what he is saying? How about you see if they comport to the reality of what things God has already promised and said? No. They are thinking of it pragmatic to control their own power and their own purposes. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. You see the dismissive attitude they had for the average Jewish person? By the way, if you ever find yourself in leadership and you find yourself thinking with such derision towards those you're leading, promise you are thinking of things wrong. Look at the way they speak of the average Jewish person. They're all going to believe in them. They're all going to be fooled. We have to protect them. And then the Romans will come away and take away both our place and our nation. What were they seeking to preserve? Did in anywhere they talk about the worship of God, the holiness of God, and the purpose of God? Or did they just consider their own power and their own interests? If everyone goes and believes in this guy, the Romans are going to come and they're going to take away our power. They admitted he did all these signs. They interviewed the guy who was born blind. They interviewed his parents trying to find any chink in the armor, any place where they could get around this. And every single time they tried, they couldn't do it. And now a man who had been risen from the dead is walking around Jerusalem. What are we to do? If we let it go on like this, we're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our nation. We want to protect our power and our nation. And so the high priest there in the middle of the Sanhedrin speaks up. One would almost hope that the high priest at least would focus them on the word of God and the promises to endure, that the kingdom of heaven would surely... No. Instead, verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Good start, by the way. (laughs) 100% agree. You know nothing at all, nor do you understand. It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, let's talk about Caiaphas's perspective for just a second. He's agreeing with them. We're going to lose our power and our nation, so let us come together to end him. Let's put him to death. It's not, not the lesser of the two evils. If we lose our nation... Then a lot of people will die. So let's go and we'll kill this guy and we'll protect our nation. It's better if he just dies and then the whole nation will not die. But John does something fascinating by peeling back heaven for just a moment. The high priest, still here under the old covenant, is still the prophetic voice of the people. Which means, just like Balaam, when Balaam had intended to go out and curse the people of God, and God changes his words in the air to blessings, here Caiaphas intends that he were going to put to death one man so that the whole nation doesn't perish. And John includes this reality. He says he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would indeed die for the nation. It is an incredible statement. That means that the high priest was prophesying something he didn't even know. He had no concept that in putting Jesus to death, he would truly save the nation from their sins. He thought that if in putting him to death, he would save the nation from Rome. And here the prophecy comes out from his own lips, and John includes this reality by peeling back heaven for a second and saying, this didn't come from his own mind. He was high priest, and so God spoke through him. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and then John includes this marvelous, marvelous promise, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. What are we to learn from this? God has intention in the smallest thing. Whether you intend it or not, are we not to learn this throughout all of scripture? Genesis on. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is Joseph. Joseph, one, because nothing really bad has ever said about him. He probably speaks when he should have his foot in his mouth instead, but aren't we all like that? After all the things that Joseph endures, being sold into slavery by his brothers, being uh, told his father uh, that he died, being wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife, being forgotten in prison, all these years in prison, and God keeps on giving him ability to interpret dreams. Raises him up to the second in command in Egypt. Remember this whole story. Then his brothers, during a famine, come to Egypt because all of the land around had come during that famine to Egypt. This is how Egypt gained a monarchy in the ancient world. They ended up owning all of the land. His brothers come. And he hides his identity for a while. But then when he is eating with them at the close of the book of Genesis, do you know what he says? When his brothers fear, when they find out who he is, that, they're, that he's going to put them to death... Do you know what Joseph says? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good to preserve people's life even to this day. The subversive purposes of God are always at work. It does not matter, Christian, how bleak a day is we still rejoice and thank God because it's a day he made. We say, "Well, what if great pain and great suffering occurs on that day? We thank God for even in those times, we will not only be blessed with the suffering of the people of God, we'll be blessed to know that in the midst of our suffering, not only is God just with us, but he is working his purposes in that. I have seen many dark days In my life, in other people's lives, I have been next to people when they suffer some great hardships. I have been alone when suffering my own sometimes. I have never seen the people of God utterly abandoned. Not once. Not only because God is with them, but because the people of God are with them as well. I have never seen the people of God abandoned. And even if they are abandoned to death... God is with them. Our lives are hidden away with him. And the expression of hope for the people of God is not found in tomorrow might be better. Christian, tomorrow might be worse. And so might the next day, and the next, and the next. But God's purposes and God's promises endure. And there is nothing not what Caesar or king or president can do that can take that from us. It does not matter if it is a hard day or an easy day. That only tells us what our stance is. That does not tell us what the capabilities of God is. The capabilities of God are far beyond what you or I can think or imagine. Things that you and I cannot accomplish or do, but things we can certainly rely on when God expresses that we are to count it all joy when we pass through various trials, he is not saying lie to yourself. He doesn't say that passing through trials and tribulations are actually fun, so you should be happy. No, he says you count it joy. Why? Because it has purpose. It is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison something that nothing else can do. And look at, look at what goes on here, because you will see in the next passages, they don't even seek to destroy and kill Jesus. Now they're going to go try to put Lazarus to death. Why? Because everything, everything is determined by how one reacts to Christ. God's purposes will out. It is indeed, Caiaphas, better that one man die than the whole nation perish. But you must understand, that is not to protect political power, no. That is the role of the Lamb of God who is taking away the sin of the world. One person at a time. And here, as it is expressed, it goes far beyond what anyone imagined. It is not just for the nation, but for the people of God that are scattered abroad all over the face of the world. I don't know if you realize this or not, but when you hear the phrase from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world, do you know where we live? We're the uttermost parts of the world. And the gospel has come here to our ears. And it is not for the salvation of our nation or one people. No, it is for the salvation of his people throughout the world. And it is a marvelous gift to us. It is a marvelous gift to us that Christ has given his life in our stead. That we may believe in him, and even if we die as well, we shall yet live. For our God is not a God of the dead, is he? He's a God of the living. Which is why he can say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are still with me. And Christian, when you die, you will be with him too. For he is not the God of the dead, but a God of the living. You say, well, what will that experience be? I need to know so that I can suffer well. No, you don't. You need to know your Savior so that you can suffer well. I believe the church in this country would be so much better off if it spent most of its energy learning how to suffer rightly. That we may be thankful to God for his purposes no matter what the day looks like. No matter how frustrating it may be. No matter how much it may suck us into its despair. There is a God who works in the smallest moments to bring about his eternal plans. This is what is meant when the Apostle promises to us that all things work together for that good salvation that God is working in our hearts and in the entirety of the world. All things. Every single one of them. Think through your Rolodex of memories. The good ones, the menial ones, the bad ones. The happy times, the abuses, the sins against you and the sins that you've done towards others. God working through all things to bring about his salvation of his people throughout the world. Those are the subversive purposes of God. I promise you, if you look through all the things of your life, you will not be able to see it everywhere. You will not be able to see the purposes of God in all things. We don't have that perspective yet. But we have the word of a God who constantly reminds us that this is what he is doing bringing about everything by his plan and purpose so that his people may be saved. You can hear it in the apostles' prayer of Acts chapter 4. Them thanking God that he had predestined, and here I quote, predestined and ordained everything whatsoever came to pass by the hands of Herod, the Pharisees, and the people to put to death the Lord Christ and that he may be raised from the dead, that they may be saved. May we share that same prayer because here we sit scattered abroad abroad as children of God here at the ends of the earth. May we thank God that the Pharisees that day intended to put Christ to death. May we thank God for his suffering and ours because we know that in that suffering, in that frustration, there is purposes that you and I cannot see here. That our sufferings and our difficulties are not accidents of time. They are purposeful and they are meaningful. What losses that we have endured are not meaningless, they are part of God's salvation of His people. There is not a single suffering that I have looked back on my time and in the middle of, I was so happy to be working through it. They're not fun. You and I all know this, but they are gifts. God is preparing us for a weight of glory that is beyond all our comparison as we look not to what can be seen, for the things that are seen are transient, but we look to the things which are not seen, for the things which are not seen are eternal. And yes, that is a quote of 2 Corinthians. Why do we do this? Because, my friends, if we look the other way and we say we must gauge everything by what our eyes see and only by what we can perceive, we will never trust Christ. We will only trust ourselves. And you want to know despair? Trust yourself. To make sense of this world, you want to know despair? Trust yourself to rightly interpret the purpose for purposeless evil that befalls you. You want to know despair? Try to figure out only on your own recognizance why it is you suffered great losses and great pains. You want to know life? Trust in Him who you have never seen. But who works in places where you cannot perceive? Think of the warning of Thomas at the end of this. I know you've read the Gospel of John before, it's where he's working us up to. Thomas, you believe only because you've seen. There's a special blessing for those who believe and have never seen. And the same goes for every day for our Christian walk. You say, maybe I can work my mind around the purpose for our sufferings, but what about the mundane? I go from day to day, and it seems purposeless sometimes. Maybe God only works in the really extremes of life, the sufferings and the rejoicing times. No, no, no. He works through the mundane, too. In fact, that's his normal operations. You come to church, and you go, well, I don't understand. You know, we read the Bible, we sing songs, we hear a sermon... Sing another song. We go home. I don't understand the point. It's mundane. It's the same thing every week. Yes, this is how God works in the world. Sometimes we'll endure great sufferings together. I'm not saying go out and seek it. No. Sometimes we'll experience great rejoicing together. Like when baptisms come and so forth. But most of the time, life is mundane, isn't it? God is at work there too. And we are reminded in the Gospel of John that this is how God's purpose outs into the world. It is subversive. It is underneath the current of everything that we can see. Because watch this. Though the entire leadership of Israel was seeking his death, his hour hadn't come yet, had it? Nope, not yet, almost. And so he, verse 54 no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. Why? If they put him to death this weekend, wouldn't it be just as efficient as the next weekend? Right? Wouldn't it have worked? It wasn't his time. The next weekend would be his time. This is not about escaping death. This is, it is not my hour. Next week will be his hour. This is the week before crucifixion. The next week will be his hour. And until then, he will stay away from Jerusalem. Because why? There was an important picture going on here. It's one of the reasons why I love the book of Exodus. Because it teaches us what's going on here. Jesus is waiting Passover. Why? Because he is the Lamb of Passover and the fulfillment of all this. Passover is the next week. And so everyone there is reasoning, maybe he'll come up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Verse 55, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover in order to purify himself. And they were looking for Jesus. He's a rabbi. He ought to be, in fact, should be, nearly required to be, in Jerusalem for the Passover. And notice the perspective of everyone here. The Pharisees, rather than looking back to the salvation of God in providing salvation for people that did not earn it or make it, but instead covered themselves with the blood of the Lamb at the original Passover, instead of their focus on that and the subversive purposes of God, even in the plagues of Egypt and the deliverance of his people, And the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and all the things that went on in that story, instead of focusing on that, which is what they should have been focusing on, they are trying to kill Jesus. Their focus was wrong. Their focus was on protecting their power and their control. It was on protecting their nation and how people thought of them. And it caused them to make grave errors. Because here, instead of paying attention to the Passover, instead, they are hunting Jesus down. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? They say in verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders. We can't find him. If anyone knows where he is, tell us so that we may arrest him. say, John, that's that's no way to sell the gospel to your readers. That if they believe on this one who couldn't prevent his own death, that they would live even though they died? How is that a good marketing plan? I mean, the gospel, if you're going to try to sell the gospel, maybe, maybe sweeten the pot a little bit. Everything will be better if you follow Jesus, right? Your money goes up. Your health gets better. You have no health problems. Everything's nice and comfy and cozy. And Is that your experience? Is that Christ's experience? Is that the apostles' experience? Any of you know how John died? Uh, the second time when he was persecuted. The first. Anyone know what his first persecution was? Say again? Boiled, Boiled in oil. Very good. Someone knows their church history. <laughs> Boiled in oil and he didn't die. And so instead they took a newly boiled man and put him on the island of Patmos. Where he received and wrote the book of Revelation. (coughs) You ever had a day like that? Neither have I and I don't want to ask for it. But understand, he knew who he was dealing with. He is not trying to sell you on a comfy, feel-good Christian life. If someone sold you on that, I'm sorry they lied to you. Now that you're a part of the church, let me give you the real. It may cost you everything to follow Christ. And if it costs you everything, and every day from that until death is nothing but bleak, dark suffering, I promise you it is worth it. And not, I promise you, the scriptures do. The glory that is revealed to those who follow the Lord that have suffered the greatest is a perspective of the glory of God in the eternal state that not everyone shares. You say, well, why the suffering in my life? You will not receive the answer as to why, but I will tell you this. Suffering well as a Christian gives you a perspective of God and the eternal state that others won't have. There's purpose behind it, Christian. Do not pray only for good days. I'm not saying pray for bad, but I am saying this. Should you be, and let me put it in the terms that the early church spoke of it, should you be gifted days of suffering Endure them well and thank God for them. That is how the church has seen it. That is how John is writing. Because we realize that the one that we are following has not failed in his promises. In fact, our sufferings show that his promises are coming true. That he works through all of them. The subversive purposes of God are a matter of great gratitude for the Christian Do not lose heart, Christian. Do not aim only for good times because they are fleeting. Sometimes good times last for a long while. But you know what the interruptions to those look like. And if we are not prepared, they will unsettle us to the core. Thank God for every day that comes. Let's do that for today. Our Father, we're grateful for this day. We know this too is a day that you have made. And we will rejoice and be glad in it. Father, we pray that we depend on your purposes all the more, no matter the difficulties that come our way, no matter the ease that comes our way. We thank you, Father, for your word, because it constantly reminds us of these things and works on our hearts that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as you constantly prepare us for an eternal weight of glory. We thank you that your purposes work in the smallest of grains of sand, that nothing will befall us outside your purpose. We thank you, Father, that what evil attacks our lives and seeks to undo us was not an accident, that it brought us even here to hear your word and your promise. We thank you that your purposes are much higher than ours, that your thoughts and your ways are far higher than ours. We thank you, Father. Thank you for not answering all of our prayers with yes. We thank you that your wisdom is far higher than ours. We pray this all in your son's name, who blazed the path of suffering well before us. Amen.